You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. During her confirmation hearings, Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson said her experiences as a public defender, a member of the Sentencing Commission, an appellate judge and a trial judge would inform her role on the Supreme Court. I was a trial judge and my methodology has developed in that context. I don't know how many other justices other than Justice Sotomayor have that same perspective, but it informs me with respect to what I understand to be my proper judicial role. Now some defense lawyers are hoping that Jackson will become a voice for criminal defendants, unlike her predecessor, and use the weight of her experience to form a new majority on the court in some criminal cases. An early test will come in a case that asks whether judges can punish defendants for crimes a jury has acquitted them of. Joining me is Ohio State University law professor Douglas Berman. Doug, do you think that Justice Jackson's background will give her more gravitas than a normal junior justice at the conference table when it comes to criminal justice issues? Yeah, and so Judge Jackson has a really rich history, both in the work of the judiciary. So, you know, she clerked for three different judges, you know, two judges and a justice. And that in and of itself is exceptional and I think gives her a rich set of perspectives about the work of judging and particularly the kinds of cases that work their way through the federal courts. You know, it's it's quite common now, almost I think all but maybe Justice Kagan of the current justices had experience as a circuit judge. So seeing cases that made their way to Supreme Court from the appellate stage. But Justice Jackson both clerked at the district court, the circuit court, and the Supreme Court, and then had a pretty extensive period as a district judge, then a short period as a circuit judge. And so that piece, even apart from her time as a federal public defender and serving on the Sentencing Commission, that piece already not only distinguishes her from her colleagues, but I think particularly gives her a set of insights and perhaps an extra bit of confidence in kind of knowing how federal courts deal with a range of issues at every level. And then the piece that really carries over to the criminal justice space that I work in is that she has a background as a federal public defender, one of the few justices who in the court's entire history have had a role in that respect, and then also served a number of years on the U.S. Sentencing Commission, and so particularly looked at sentencing practice and policy that way. And so you You kind of add all that up, and even though she's the youngest justice, she's in some sense the most experienced in sort of watching the federal justice system function from all these different perspectives. Her predecessor, she's replacing Justice Stephen Breyer, and everyone knows him as a liberal justice, but he wasn't necessarily so liberal in criminal defense matters, was he? 
That's right. I mean, I think over the course of, you know, a couple decades on the court, you could point to, oh, these were some very liberal positions he had on some criminal justice matters. And the most obvious one there might be the death penalty, where he seemed, especially in his later years, to be trying to build an argument that the way the death penalty functions in our country is unconstitutional. But then you look at some other matters, sometimes his rulings on Fourth Amendment search and seizure issues, his rulings on the right to jury trials under the Sixth Amendment, some other issues as well. He was much more inclined to be leaning towards the prosecution, or at least in some sense was maybe valuably unpredictable, very eager to kind of hear the pros and cons, but but often that was kind of styled in the context of being a very pragmatic justice who was very concerned about whether and how any limits on law enforcement, any limits on prosecutors might function to kind of undermine some broader goals in the criminal justice system. And so in many respects, every justice is open-minded to these issues. But I think definitely Justice Breyer, especially compared more recently to Justice Sotomayor, was less likely to be critical or at least questioning of a lot of assertions that you couldn't limit the police this way or you couldn't restrict trial rights that way without having a profound impact on the operation of the criminal justice system. Tell us about the case of Deonta McClinton, a case that the justices are considering whether or not they'll take. So this case involves a young man who got involved with a number of other young men, and they robbed a pharmacy. Sadly, in the course of doing so, scared an awful lot of people there, but didn't directly hurt anybody and only were able to get away with a few hundred dollars. Then in the course of dividing up the loot that they got and kind of fighting over, it seems, how the robbery didn't go well, one of the robbers involved got shot uh, and shot and killed. And the prosecution's claim was that Mr. McClinton was the shooter and was guilty of seeking to try to rob his cohort of his part of the loot. And when he couldn't get it, he then shot this individual. Ultimately, and this is the key part of the story, the jury didn't agree with that theory. And there was evidence presented at trial that suggested somebody else may have done that. And the details were unclear. What was clear is the jury was not convinced, was not certain that Mr. McClinton should be held accountable because they acquitted him on the charges at trial that related to the other young man being shot and killed. When the case got to sentencing, however, the government said, hey, judge, remember all that evidence we put forward, you know, arguing that he was guilty of killing his co-conspirator? Well, even though the jury acquitted on those counts, we still think the evidence should convince you by a preponderance of the evidence, which is typically the standard applied at sentencing, as opposed to the beyond a reasonable doubt standard applied at trial. We think you should still be convinced that he was responsible for that other young man's death. And so when you sentence him for the robbery that he was convicted of, consider also the fact that he is responsible for causing this death, that he really is a murderer, even though the jury acquitted him on that. So the judge sentenced him to 20 years as opposed to the about five years he would have gotten if he'd been sentenced just for the robbery he was actually convicted of. That's pretty much right. And again, exactly what he would have gotten for just the robbery could be debated. And this is where things get complicated because fundamentally there could be other aggravating factors that the judge might rely on. But the judge said, I think you were responsible for this death. I think because of that, I have to increase your guideline range because the guideline range was even in the 30-year range. And the judge decided to only, I put that in air quotes, give 20. And the rich, long, detailed backstory is There's a case from almost 25 years ago now where the Supreme Court said 
a judge's consideration of evidence, even related to counts on which a defendant's been acquitted, doesn't violate due process. And that older decision came before some more recent rulings about the right to jury trial and the reach of the Sixth Amendment. And so there's been lots of complaints by by me and lots of other people saying, we don't think that's good precedent anymore. And the McClinton case is being pressed as an opportunity for the court to reconsider that older precedent. Does this come up often? I would think it doesn't. However, since there's a term for this acquitted conduct issue, I guess it does. You know, again, it depends on how you want to define often. So given the fact that roughly speaking, 19 out of 20 cases in the federal system are resolved by pleas, then, you know, in the vast majority of cases, this can't come up because the, the case has been resolved by a plea and the terms of sentencing are defined by what's been admitted as part of the plea. But in a lot of cases that go to trial, it's quite common that there's multiple counts and that the defendant isn't convicted on all the multiple counts. And there can actually be different variations on this theme. One variation that's fairly high profile, that's not exactly the same issue, but but I made reference to it in some of uh, my writings about these matters, is the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos trial, where there were multiple fraud counts brought to the jury. She was convicted on a few of them, and then there was a hung jury on some of the others. And those have now been dismissed because the prosecution said, we don't want to bother. We've got enough convictions here. We're not going to try to retry those those hung counts. But one of the reasons the prosecutor feels comfortable doing that is under these doctrines, they're completely entitled to, they might even think they're obliged to, put forward that evidence to the judge at sentencing. A judge still thinks that the amount of loss or the other aggravating factors under those counts that led to a hung jury, we still think we proved them close enough for government work, so to speak, and that should be part of your calculations as to what kind of sentence you should be facing. And there's a bunch of other examples like this, too. What, what's often very common in the drug settings, which are you know, part and parcel of about you know, at least a quarter, if not more, of the federal cases that get brought, is the government will charge a defendant with multiple counts of drug dealing or being part of a broader conspiracy in which there was lots and lots of dealing going on if the case goes to trial. And again, that's the exception. But if the case goes to trial, it's not at all uncommon that a jury will reach a mixed verdict. Oh, yes, we think the defendant was definitely involved in these five transactions where they were personally doing the sales. But you say he's also part of these 20 other transactions, and he says he wasn't. Eh, we have a doubt about that. We're going to quit on those other charges. And then still, the prosecution can say, they often say in those kinds of cases, well, using the preponderance of evidence standard, Judge, we think we put enough evidence to show he was connected to these other 20 sales. And so you should use the amount of drugs that were involved, not just in the sales that he was convicted of, but all these other sales that we think we have evidence to connect him to. That all should be part of the guideline calculation that drives up the sentence. And that's basically the fact pattern that led to a case about 10 years ago really the same basic issue where the late Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg joined with Justice Thomas in dissenting from the denial of cert. It was a case called Jones, where, again, it was this drug setting where the prosecution claimed that a series of defendants were involved in all sorts of drug dealing. The jury came back with a very mixed and limited verdict, and then the prosecution went back to the judge at sentencing and said, all the drug dealing we allege should be considered for deciding what the guideline range is. And the judge concluded at sentencing, yeah, I guess I'm convinced that that's more likely than not. And so I've got to drive up the guideline sentencing range 
which is often, you know, tethered to these quantifiable factors like how much drugs are involved or how much loss is involved. And, and that's why this can become not just common in the cases that go to trial, but have such significant impact in the length of sentence being recommended by the guidelines and the amount of prison time ultimately given by judges. In that case, in the 2014 case, they needed one more vote to take the case. Why do you think they didn't have the vote of Justice Sotomayor or Justice Kagan? Well, thanks for queuing that up because this gets back to our earlier points about Justice Breyer has been consistently concerned about extending jury trial rights that would limit, in some respects, how judges use their discretion at sentencing. And so my read on that was always the justices Sotomayor and, and Kagan, even though they might be inclined to vote with the defendant in a case like that, were quite concerned about what Justice Breyer might think and even was concerned that maybe Justice Breyer would convince other members of the court to not want to limit the use of acquitted conduct. Once the case actually got taken up, so their instinct maybe was, let's just let this issue percolate some more and hope, you know, it'll get addressed some other way. You know, among the things that's interesting on this particular topic is there have been both congressional bills to rewrite the sentencing rules in statute to say that judges shouldn't consider this kind of acquitted conduct. And just recently, the newly constituted U.S. Sentencing Commission has indicated that one of their possible priorities for the coming year would be to speak to this issue as well. And so I think there's an argument to be made, or more accurately, this is what the Supreme Court's likely going to be struggling with, even if they think this is a problematic practice. Gee, should we be addressing this through broad constitutional rules? Or is this the kind of matter that it makes more sense to envision Congress and the Sentencing Commission to address in the way that they're arguably more able to, to craft nuanced rules to deal with? So you need the votes of four justices to take the case. Let's say you have Clarence Thomas because he was in dissent yep. on the last one. Think, Let's think, well, You never know how these things go, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so you might have Justice Jackson and Justices Sotomayor and Kagan. Maybe. I actually think, although, again, this gets to, you know, the kind of inside baseball speculation, Justice Gorsuch has actually been one of the most vocal advocates for jury trial rights, kind of stepping into the shoes of Justice Scalia, who was one of the most vocal ones. So I think Justice Gorsuch might be a fourth vote, maybe a fifth vote, depending on how all this comes together. In addition, and I think not to be overlooked, Justice Kavanaugh has actually written when he was a D.C. circuit judge to say that he thinks this is a problem and that the Supreme Court ought to take it up to kind of clarify things, although that's sometimes easier to say when you're a circuit judge and you're telling what the Supreme Mm -hmm. Court should do rather than when you're a justice yourself. So, you know, I think he's another possible vote. And last but absolutely not least, Chief Justice Roberts also has been relatively quiet but not disengaged justice with respect to some of these jury trial rights issues. And so I think there's reason to speculate there could be ample votes. But I also think there's a way one could say, yeah, but you know what? Now it looks like Congress is interested in maybe addressing this. Now it looks like the Sentencing Commission is interested in addressing this. If we jump in, that will disrupt that process, or at least we're worried maybe we can't craft a rule as a matter of constitutional law that will be as nuanced and helpful as the development of a rule through some other process you know, legislative or commission-based. It's never easy to figure out whether or not the court is going to take a case, is it? Thanks so much, Doug. That's Ohio State University law professor Douglas Berman. You know success when you see it. 
or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. 20 million, 50 million, 80 million, 100 million, blah, blah. You get a million, you get 100 million, you get a 50 million. On his InfoWars show, Alex Jones mocked the nearly $1 billion jury verdict against him for spreading the myth that the deadliest school shooting in U.S. history never happened, saying he could keep the Sandy Hook families in court for years. Do these people actually think they're getting any money? Getting the verdict is only the first hurdle in a long legal process for the families, one complicated by the fact that Jones' company, Free Speech Systems, has filed for bankruptcy. Joining me is bankruptcy attorney Nicholas Kofroth of Fox Rothschild. This verdict, $965 million and then another $50 million in Texas, how often are these huge verdicts collected? Well, I mean, it's tough when you have a bankruptcy case intervening, and particularly here, we have a bankruptcy case that was filed kind of strategically before these judgments were entered. When you have a billion-dollar judgment, (laughs) it's pretty tough to collect on it, and certainly there's a lot of motivation on Alex Jones's part to come up with as many maneuverings in court as possible, you know, appropriate or not, to delay payment on these debts. And these bankruptcy cases are certainly kind of part of that strategy to prolong payment and to at least come up with a narrative that free speech system doesn't have the money for it. He's personally liable for the damages. If he doesn't file for personal bankruptcy, and he claims he has less than $2 million to his name, if he doesn't file for personal bankruptcy, can the plaintiffs continue to go after him, you know, chase down his assets, go after his wages? Yeah, they'll be able to chase him to the ends of the earth if they want to. It's not kind of the typical judgment that you'd see in a tort case where someone's injured, incurring medical bills, hospital bills that need to get paid with this judgment. You know, there is a little bit more flexibility on the plaintiff's part to sit around and wait for Alex Jones to start coming up with the money. But again, Alex Jones is going to be motivated to continue trying to come up with legal fictions that suggest that he has no money to pay a judgment. Let's talk about the bankruptcy proceedings that his company, Free Speech Systems, is in. What stage are they at in the bankruptcy proceedings? You know, they've they've kind of come to an interesting stage, particularly for subchapter five. And if you don't mind, I'm going to kind of quickly go into just for context what subchapter five is. So, So in 2020, Congress enacted this new subchapter to chapter 11. Chapter 11 is what we're all familiar with as a business bankruptcy that's reorganized. What has happened over the years is Chapter 11 has become very expensive and very time-consuming for small mom-and-pop businesses and small mom-and-pop business owners. So what Congress came up with was Subchapter 5, which created this kind of expedited proceeding for mom-and-pop businesses to quickly move through something really similar to a, a Chapter 11, but within only a couple of months. And the way that Congress came up with that was they eliminated some of the oversight that you would typically see in a Chapter 11 case. 
a big one is the Committee of Unsecured Creditors, which is this body that kind of solves the collective action problem of a bunch of small unsecured creditors. They get to help supervise the case and, and appear in the case and, and monitor the debtor throughout it. That's been eliminated in Subchapter 5 and replaced with a Subchapter 5 trustee that has very limited oversight roles at the outset, just really to kind of help shepherd the plan along to confirmation. And so Alex Jones used Subchapter 5 to file free speech systems bankruptcy. And that eliminated the oversight of, you know, a creditors committee, which would probably be populated by these victims because they have significant, at the time they had significant contingent judgments. And the timing of when Alex Jones filed free speech systems bankruptcy case is really important. He did it before the judgments were entered. Now, again, this is really only a provision of the bankruptcy code intended for small mom and pop businesses. But what we've learned is free speech systems generates a significant amount of revenue annually. So the way that he was able to sneak into subchapter five was one, these massive judgments hadn't been entered yet. So it, those didn't count against him for the debt cap that Congress placed on filing subchapter five bankruptcy. You can only have a company that has $7.5 million worth of debt that files. Obviously, these judgments were much more significant, but they hadn't been entered yet. And the other kind of machination that Alex Jones had worked out along the way is there's this other entity, PQPR, that he owns. And essentially what PQPR does is acts as a middleman between Alex Jones's podcasting company, Free Speech Systems, and the companies from which Free Speech Systems buys all the kind of supplements that they sell on the Alex Jones InfoWars podcast. That is a tremendous source of their revenue. Now, it's pretty contrived what Free Speech Systems alleged to have occurred between PQPR and itself. But apparently PQPR was out there middlemanning and free speech systems racked up a significant amount of debt for these middle manning services. And so just before free speech systems filed bankruptcy, it entered into a secured loan with PQPR in the millions of dollars range. And what free speech systems claims is, well, this was a way to you know, create a repayment plan to this other entity that's been doing services for us. The contrived part of it looks like it was created to at least form an argument that, hey, free speech systems is insolvent and judgment-proof. The debt between PQPR and free speech systems, these affiliate entities, is not counted toward the debt limit. So this is how a company with a lot of debt and a lot of revenue was able to sneak in to this new provision of the bankruptcy code that doesn't automatically have the same kind of oversight systems in place that a regular Chapter 11 case would have. The Sandy Hook families have intervened in the bankruptcy case. They accused Jones of burdening his company, Free Speech Systems, with $54 million in concocted debt. When will those claims be settled? Well, part of the early litigation in the bankruptcy case was the victim saying, hey, this debt with PQPR is concocted. And it's going to form the basis of an argument that free speech systems is insolvent and judgment proof. So the victims said to the bankruptcy court, look, you know, they filed their schedules and their financial disclosures, free speech systems did, indicating these debts were legitimate. The only person in charge of confirming whether they're legitimate is Alex Jones and his cronies who are running this business. We don't trust that. Please appoint a committee in this case to look into this. And the court kind of took a middle ground approach 
instead of appointing a committee, the court said, what I'm going to do is I already have a subchapter five trustee who is a disinterested person. I'm going to expand the scope of her duties and I'm going to have her investigate whether or not these debts actually are legitimate. And so the debtors are going to have to respond to document requests the trustee has issued. The bankruptcy court has kind of pumped the brakes on moving the bankruptcy process forward so this independent and kind of unusual investigation can take place because the bankruptcy court seriously doubted the legitimacy of those debts. Could the bankruptcy court eventually order liquidation of Jones's business? I don't think the bankruptcy court could or would necessarily order a liquidation, but the position that the debtor finds himself in now is a little difficult because we now have an independent investigation into the legitimacy of this major secured debt. And if the investigation determines that this debt is not legitimate, the gambit that seems to have motivated this bankruptcy filing in the first place of an otherwise you know, healthy company before the judgments were entered kind of evaporates. And then you're left with a debtor under bankruptcy court supervision that is required to file a plan that pays creditors in some way, at least with revenue over the next five years. And you don't have this kind of manufactured debt to serve as an argument that the only entity that can get paid is an Alex Jones affiliate. The debtor would then have to contend with the fact that it's able to and obligated to pay these judgments, at least in part. The interesting problem for free speech systems is its revenue is based on Alex Jones podcasting, and nobody can force Alex Jones to continue podcasting for free speech systems. So one of the significant points of leverage the debtor has is if Alex Jones says, look, I'm not podcasting for free speech systems anymore. You can have the liquidation value of the company, which is probably not going to be significant since they don't really have significant assets. Could he then podcast for a different company? Yeah, he could. I think that there would be significant arguments that this company would essentially end up being an alter ego of free speech systems. But the problem is that just creates more litigation, more delay, and more time investigating this kind of web of companies that Alex Jones has built up. There's a separate question that you also raised about his own personal liability. If he's continuing to generate income, that might be a source of collection against him personally. One thing is sure, a lot more litigation ahead. Thanks, Nick. That's Nicholas Kofroth of Fox Rothschild. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by listening to our Bloomberg Law podcast, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.